0: The following episode of the Paracast, the gold standard of paranormal radio, includes advertising provided by our network GCN. If you'd like to subscribe to an ad-free version of the program, plus the exclusive After the Paracast podcast, please visit www.theparacast.plus. That's P-L-U-S. Once again, that's www.theparacast.plus. The Paracast, Paracast dot dot plus. Plus. You're in the Paracast, the gold standard of paranormal radio. And now, here's Gene Steinberg.
1: Well, it's been a year and a half or so since Joshua Kutchen joined us on the Paracast. He's always been one of our favorite guests. We like to say that when he's here, so he doesn't feel bad if we call him anything else. So <laughs> no, he wouldn't do it. We wouldn't do a thing like that, Joshua.
2: Trust me. You can Can call me anything except late for breakfast.
1: (laughs) Well, listen, you can call me anything but late for dinner. Fair (laughs) enough. So, you've been always very busy with your paranormal pursuits. What have you been up to lately?
2: I am entering... An especially busy season of life, I think. I just today uh, finished writing a foreword for a new Bigfoot book that I'm really excited about. I'm not sure how much I can really disclose on the topic or the author at this point, but the thing that I find most exciting about it is that most Bigfoot literature that's out there is really obsessed with this sort of binary of does it exist or not, right? Like that's usually as far as the question tends to go. And this particular book that I just got done writing a foreword for It's more of a humanities based approach to the question of Bigfoot. So there's a certain assumption that something strange is going on. And then what does that tell us about? anything else. You know? What does that tell us about humanity? What does that tell us about the other things? It's, it's very much in the lines of uh, something that Dr. Jeff Kripal at Rice University would write or something that Dr. Diana Walsh Pasolka would write, and I'm just really looking forward to seeing that out there in the world. It's not my book, to be clear. It's someone else's book, but I'm hoping to help shepherd it through the publication process as, as much as I can because I think it's a book that needs to be read. It's been a long time since I've read something that excited me as much as this particular book did. I just got finished with that. I uh, am joining a paranormal research group uh, here in Georgia, uh, where I live. You know, a lot of what I've done has been more in the scholarly vein, and I have made an effort over the past year to get out into the field a little bit more. But I want to make it more of a regular, recurring thing. So that's something I've got to look forward to in the coming year. And the biggest thing that I've got on the horizon right now is I'm teaching a nine-class course online through the Cosmos Institute, that's Cosmos with a K, on the near-death experience, whereas most near-death experience courses would probably take a look at an an aspect of the near-death experience per class. We sort of try to get as much of that out of the way as we can in the first four or five classes, and then we end up Going into these deeper realms in terms of archetypes and in terms of what uh, the near-death experience has to say about other contact modalities and other contact with non-human intelligences. So I'm really looking forward to that. That's uh, through the CosmosInstitute.org. That's Cosmos with a K. So that'll be happening March 23rd. We hope our listeners don't
1: tune in on March 24th and say, see what you missed.
2: (laughs) Well, you know, I'm I'm not sure exactly when enrollment closes, but I do know that the courses are also being recorded so that in case someone has to miss a class, they can catch up. So there might be a chance for some people to slip in under the wire after it starts, I'm not sure.
1: Well certainly. It's something that we should all check out because more and more, at least with UAPs and now apparently with Bigfoot, we see academic interest, which is important. It's not just people running around chasing weird stuff. It's trying to put an explanation to it if we
2: can. Right, and and sort of wrestling with the bigger implications of okay, this thing exists, what do we do with it? You know, um, And I think it's been a really interesting time to be involved in these topics and to see how they've been embraced by academia. One thing I, I'm constantly making sure that I keep repeating as we continue into this UFO renaissance, I guess we'll call it. And, of course, I'm not very fond of UAP. I tend to be old-fashioned and say UFO and flying saucer. But one of the things that I keep trying to repeat is that as much as we like to look at the loftier implications of what the UFO might represent, it's still important to get your hands dirty and to go back into Tim Green Beckley's material and and the Jim Mosley stuff and, you know, people from, you know, your generation, Gene, because there was so much hard work that was done at that point and there have been instances where i have seen people take an interest in ufos and and make these observations that were made by this older generation and i'm like just do your literature review first (laughs) before you get involved in ufos and think you have something new to say read the literature see what people have said and then add to it you know so that's something that i really want to make sure that we keep in mind as we go forward is that we do stand on the shoulders of giants in this regard this is the problem i have with some people who are getting
1: involved in this field. And I'll mention specifically one, Luis Elizondo, who got involved having some sort of position with the Pentagon's UFO program, one of their various projects. And now he's everybody's expert. But they never look at old sightings, or at least they don't do so publicly. Nothing to denigrate Elizondo, except, let's be fair, some people say that he kind of overemphasize his credentials when he was part of that group.
2: Again, I'm a bit afraid that some of these older signals are getting lost in in the noise, because some of these, just because a a case is old, uh, doesn't mean that it doesn't have great importance on what the phenomenon might represent. And something something else I really try to emphasize to folks um, who are interested in the topic is that a lot of the folks in the disclosure movement are very much aware of how strange the UFO phenomenon is. And if you get disclosure and it doesn't include that high strangeness, then just be aware that it's a partial disclosure at best because there's the the people who are who are moving behind the scenes um are definitely aware of of how strange this is and and the deeper implications implications even deeper than it being possibly extraterrestrial visitors the deeper implications that are on the table as well so that's something that i think is really important to remember in this disclosure season you know along with that healthy dose of uh, salt that we should take every claim with well when dr kirkpatrick
1: left the current aaro program with the pentagon he did say something in his text about things like possible interdimensional UFOs. I thought I was reading it backwards. But he'll say, of course, well, after all, there is no evidence that we're being visited by E.T. But then uh, yeah, you know, he yeah. never defines what that evidence is supposed to be
2: with E.T. I'm really glad that you brought that up. I'm really glad that you brought that up, Gene, because I've, I've noticed some wiggle room in some of these official statements where they say things like there's no evidence of extraterrestrial visitation. There's always that extraterrestrial bit in there and it's like, okay, are we are we dancing around the actual nature of the phenomenon or are we, you know, or are we be actually being transparent? Because I'm sure that a lot of these people issuing these statements are aware that there are a multitude of hypotheses uh being offered. But, you know, the extraterrestrial one is the one that definitely gets the most press coverage. But yeah, it, it is it is an interesting time to be interested in this stuff, and it even in the short amount of time that I've been involved, um, compared to both of you gentlemen, um, the, there is something that feels a little bit substantively different about this. I mean, the fact that we're Entertaining discussions of holographic interdimensional realities in Congress um, does feel a little bit different than past disclosure seasons from what I have read and from what I have, you know, experienced in my brief time involved in the topic. Um, so I really don't know uh, where it's going to go. Um, what I've said to folks and, and, you know, predictions age like milk, right? So don't hold me to this. But um, I, I anticipate. Emerging on the other side of this current disclosure season with a sense amongst the general population, very comparable to what the general population now thinks about something like the Kennedy assassination. Um if you talk to the man on the street, woman on the street, 15 years ago, they a lot of them probably would have said, oh, the official narrative behind the Kennedy assassination is true. And now I get the sense that if you approach someone in public and would ask them that same question, they'd say, well, ah, something strange went on there. Something strange went on there. But you know, as far as a definitive answer, they don't really have that. So I would anticipate if I had to bet, and again, like I said, predictions are doomed to fail, but I would have to bet that. We emerge on the other side of this disclosure flap with a similar sentiment among the public, and it's a shift from, you know, well, I think that UFOs are bunk um, to people actually saying, well, there seems to be something strange going on. And, and I think that, I mean, that's still a significant win if you look at it, you know, historically. Um, but who knows? Maybe it'll be even more dramatic than that. Maybe it'll be less less impactful than that. I don't know. We've got
1: Joshua Kutchen with Gene and Tim. You're in
3: The Paracast.
1: Hey, listeners. I want you to have the entire Paracast experience. So I'd like to tell you about After the Paracast. After the Paracast is an exclusive feature for subscribers to the Paracast Plus Once again, theparacast.plus. Prices are just $1.50 a week, less than a cup of coffee at your local convenience store. Check out theparacast.plus to learn more about Paracast Plus.
4: It's easy to see. We're being conned by the institutions we used to trust. The mainstream media is distracting us with meaningless headlines. Instead of focusing on the harsh realities facing American families, we all know something big is coming. And that's why so many folks are preparing. They're becoming more self-reliant by investing in emergency food storage from My Patriot Supply. My Patriot Supply is the nation's largest emergency preparedness company. And they make it easy for you to prepare. Prepare today. Go to MyPatriotSupply.com. MyPatriotSupply.com. Do you know someone with a drug or alcohol problem? Get
5: help now. Insurance may cover everything. Stop the drug and alcohol nightmare.
0: we'd like to hear from you if you have a comment or question about the paracast send it to news at theparacast.com that's news at theparacast.com and don't forget to visit our famous paracast community forums at forum.theparacast.com
1: now it's not that our pop culture isn't conveying the image of possible multiple realities I mean, the superheroes are running all into different realities. That that movie version of The Flash, he goes back in time to change the fate of his mom who was murdered. As a result, he screws up reality. They had a feature in the DC Comics called Elsewhere, which was also done on TV, where they have multiple versions of the same character and all sorts of things like that. So it's not as if this isn't being presented. A few years ago... They actually had a version of Flash Gordon, not like the old Buster Crabbe serial, nor they actually had a show in the 50s on TV that lasted for a season or the comic books or the movie, where Mongo, where the places he travels to, are located in another reality. So this dimensional portal thing is, is not unusual. It's uh, obviously something that happens.
2: Yeah, it's interesting to see the discussion shift in alignment with the way that pop culture is going. I mean, in my limited interactions with people on the topic, because I don't necessarily go around broadcasting my interest in UFOs, but in the past several years, whenever the topic has come up around people outside of this context, I've been consistently impressed by the number of folks who say I don't think that they're extraterrestrial I think that they're interdimensional and I don't know if that's an influence of pop culture or not but I think it's an interesting shift in the way that these topics are discussed you know I'm sympathetic to the interdimensional idea a lot of what I talked about in my last nonfiction book ecology of souls was all about the connections to death and i think it takes very little imagination to conceive of the afterlife as being another dimension in fact there was a, a great exchange between hans holzer and brad steiger that i included in the book where holzer's saying uh, Oh, I think that these, you know, UFO beings come from the afterlife and Steiger says, Well, what about other dimensions? And Hans Holzer says, and what might be the difference, pretel? <laughs> so, you know, I think that it's sort of kind of angling in the same direction of, of some of the stuff that I'm looking at, with the obvious, you know, intellectual honesty that I have to have when saying, you know, maybe I'm completely off base with some of my observations as well. It's an interesting time to see that discussion shift from this sort of 1950s sci-fi angle to more of a, dare I say, fantasy angle of the UFO phenomenon.
3: It really is just a matter of words, isn't it? That discussion between Holzer and, and, and Steiger. I mean, one person's other dimensions is another person's astral uh, vibrational plane.
2: Yeah, and it sort of underscores something that I like to think about a lot, as evidenced from the cover of the first volume of Ecology of Soul. I have often taken – I made it a habit of listening to the lectures of, of Terrence McKenna, and he was always underscoring the importance of language in, in terms of the way that we wrestle and grapple with reality, and I think that – we're all trying to grasp at describing something that probably eludes the ability to be categorized in those terms. I mean, <laughs> this, is, this is the fourth podcast this week that I've done, and I think I've brought up this particular meme on every single podcast, but I'll bring it up again because I love it so much. There is a meme that, that circulates online, y'all have probably seen it, of a person with a hammer down by the beach and they're hammering into the tide that's coming in and each of the nails says language and the tide says reality and i just love what that conveys about how really clunky and clumsy our tools for describing just the basics of existence but you know especially this more anomalistic phenomena can be
3: i love that meme i know exactly which one you're talking about
2: (laughs) oh good (laughs) yeah yeah it's the gift that keeps on giving yeah Mm
3: -hmm. It makes me think. Also, I'm currently working on a book about the mysteries of of time, and uh, one of the chapters that I am working on deals with the various groups in Europe in the late 1980s working with um, uh, ITC. I think that's uh, now. Yeah, it,
2: it, it's it's like a, it's like a more robust version of
3: EVP, EVPs. EVPs, right? yeah, exactly. Yeah, uh, yeah. You using rather than just tape recorders, all kinds of different technologies, especially television and video screens, one of these groups allegedly was communicating with their spiritual equivalents on the other side called TimeStream. And TimeStream said that they were from, like, the third-level astral plane and that they existed on a planet called Marduk, that had a giant river running through it. Now, I don't know if you're familiar with too much science fiction, but it's an almost exact description of Philip Jose Farmer's river world novels mm. but uh, <laughs> uh, the 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 people in Luxembourg, especially, were receiving uh, video images. Uh, From this other side, not only of the people involved or the entities involved, but also images of uh, this river world. And, of course, this was before, you know, the Internet, and uh, 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 they were using um, televisions not connected Mm -hmm. to an antenna and on uh, uh, static channels and things like that. Uh, But um, the descriptions of this afterlife, and you'll put quotation marks around it, is just, you know, so fantastic as compared to some of the others that come down to us from, like, near-death experiences or even some of the other more, uh, uh, like, you know, channeled uh, communications. And, you know, back to what we were, you know, uh, saying before, I mean, you know, what is, you know, like, one person's afterlife compared to another description of you know another dimension or or another reality because even though that these people were very much involved in thinking that they were communicating with a spirit world the descriptions and images coming down to them to them seems completely different than what they were expecting those
2: are <laughs> fascinating points <laughs> and i have so much <laughs> that i i, I kind of want to say off that i mean the first one is i mean yeah it's 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 always astounding to me to look through these different interactions be it you know some of the contactee literature of going to these planets or the near-death experiences or some of some of these shamanic journeys or trips to fairyland it's a lot of the there are a lot of similarities between the ways that this this space again having trouble putting a label on it is is described. Um, but but the, but there is a consistency in terms of being you know oftentimes pastoral and sometimes having these these boundaries these boundary points like you know uh, bridges and and rivers and things like that. But I find it perhaps most interesting that sort of allusion that you made to it sounding like a a um a landscape from a work of fiction and you know i i apparently traffic in unpopular interpretations of these phenomena so i might as well throw another idea onto the pile um an idea that i've been really really fascinated with in the past i would say probably for, uh, four or five months um is this is this interplay between uh Story and, and reality and fiction and reality and it's 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 not necessarily a, a new idea because you can find antecedents for this in the work of um, Anne Druffel and Ginny Randalls and you know I know Greg Bishop has been talking a lot about this idea of co creation but it's it's a little bit distinctive from that more creations with
1: Gene Tim Joshua you're in the Paracast. <laughs>
8: Thank you for listening to GCN. Visit GCNLive.com today.
9: I had no idea it would destroy my life, but before it happened, I had a successful business in Austin, Texas. Everyone laughed at me when I shut that business down, but I could not ignore the wake up call.
10: News update.
7: I think this was a crime of opportunity. He did not know
11: her at all.
10: New information from University of Georgia Police Chief Jeff Clark about the suspect accused of killing a University of Georgia nursing student who was out
7: for a jog
10: near the campus in the town of Athens.
7: The investigation suggests that they had no relationship.
10: Records show the 26 year old man, an illegal alien from Venezuela who crossed into our country back in 2022. Chief Clark saying the man faces a a long list of charges this by the way the first murder on the uga campus in 20 years classes canceled until monday in other news polls are open in south carolina voters casting ballots in the republican primary former president trump has been campaigning in the palmetto state along with former south carolina governor nikki haley and i'm laura winters usa news
6: wellness and self-care doesn't have to be complicated
7: Yours free at mysolarbackup.com.
11: This is Jacques vallee You're listening to the podcast, The Gold Standard of Paranormal Radio.
1: Now, in looking over alternate theories, of course, there is co creation from Greg Bishop, which I don't think is mentioned much nowadays, which is kind of unfortunate.
2: It's. it's I think that Greg still has plans to uh, write a book to that effect. Uh, I think it's a great idea that's worth exploring. But, you know, it, it does have these sort of older antecedents. What I think is really interesting is is there was a comment that was made by, by my uh, friend who is an occultist by the name of Ren Collier, and he has arrived at the conclusion, at least for the time being, right? Because our opinions of these things often change. But he arrived at the conclusion that the spirits that he deals with are comprised of pure story. And that observation really made me start thinking about the ways that these narratives sort of take on a life of their own. Again, not quite co-creation because that's more tied up in cultural expectation, but story implies that you're accessing this realm of things like archetypes. And it also implies that there is some sort of agency on the behalf of the experiencer to sort of guide the narrative of their experience. And that certainly would be something that we would see in the contactee movement more to the point. I think this idea of fiction and reality blending, not only do you see a lot of antecedents for it in indigenous thinking, you know, depending upon the particular region, but it also sort of speaks to something that I have concluded myself about, you know, these phenomena, which is that they are neither solely um, physical nor psychic. Again, not a particularly revelatory observation, but… You know, anyone who says that UFOs don't have a physical component is not telling the truth because we have things like burn marks and we do measure effects from, from these things. But also people who tell you that they're um that they don't have a psychic component is overlooking, you know, the vast amount of literature that involves telepathic communication, even when someone's just seeing something as benign as a light in the sky that sometimes reacts to, to thought. So the idea that I'm I'm playing with is that this sort of tension between reality and story is is, is an expression of that physical non-physical or physical psychic dichotomy you know we see this with ghost phenomena, perhaps most explicitly where ghosts don't have any real material tangible aspects to themselves but they can leave footprints and, and slam doors and things like that or psi phenomena which is internal right by definition but also seems to interact with the shared consensus reality so i think that's what this idea of story and reality is is sort of pushing me towards, at least. And I've been wondering more recently whether or not human beings are predominantly in the physical with a foot in the psychic, and UFOs are perhaps predominantly psychic with a foot in the physical, if they're not sort of a mirror image reflection of us in that sense. Again, this is all speculative, but um, I think it's something that will be interesting to explore.
3: I like that idea. I like that idea of story. And it makes me think... All kinds of of different tales and mythologies that have come down to us through the ages, from you know, from everybody. I mean, to me, that makes a lot of sense. You know, it's just you know you talk about this, and the light bulb is now just gone off over my head. You know. <laughs> well, I mean, so uh,
2: this is sort of plays in again. It's, it's sort of adjacent to co creation theory, but it's also adjacent to ideas of tulpas and egregores and. Um, you know, what I think is really interesting about some of these Tulpa manifestations, the most famous examples, I think of, you know, the example of Alan Moore and John Constantine or Neil Gaiman, I believe, encountered some of his characters as well. In in these cases where these specific characters from fiction – and I need to do more research in this regard – but I, I have the sense that in the cases where these specific characters from fiction are sort of leaping into reality – they are being seen by the creators. They're being they're being witnessed by people to whom their very existence is existence is very intimate. Like they owe their existence to that specific person, which might explain why we don't see tulpas of Luke Skywalker and uh, Ellen Ripley from the Alien films. Is because while those are loom large in the popular consciousness, um, the primary person to whom those should appear would be George Lucas and Ridley Scott, respectively. And then, of course, you know you get into things that have this, that are part of that sort of pop culture consciousness, but they have a significantly deeper time depth, like Santa Claus, and that could be why we do have reports of Santa Claus is because that is that that's functioning at a level of intimacy almost that one would experience um, with something being one's own creation. Now, of course, this particular idea that I'm playing with runs afoul of of instances like uh, Slender Man and some of these more modern internet creations. But again, I, I think that in those cases, a lot of the people who see those things aren't aware that they originated on the internet. So they're being presented to them as sort of a, an older phenomenon and that might have some reason why they're making that jump into re- our reality. Again, just an idea that I'm playing with, but I think it's really interesting because I feel like it relieves some of the pressure on a lot of the inconsistencies that we see with UFO phenomenon. And it really does nest things like hoaxes within part of the phenomenon as well. I mean, we've known for a long time that hoaxes seem to play a part in the way that these things manifest. One of my favorite books on that topic is George Hansen's The Trickster and the Paranormal. But I think that this might be a way of sort of broadening and deepening that connection a bit. So, I don't know. I'm interested to sort of look into it a little bit more if I can ever if I can ever find the free time. Maybe I'll, I'll tackle that next. Well, the hooks
3: in aspect um, comes to us from both sides, though, so when it comes to uh, these types of, of paranormal encounters. Uh, like... Oh uh, uh the spirit communications, uh, like I was referring to you know uh, earlier, there's a lot where the uh, the people who are doing the work are get, are just getting all kinds of great information. I mean you know it just flows like it's coming from an encyclopedia, names, dates, places in the past where these entities supposedly uh, existed. yet when anybody goes and does the research, none of it was true. Yet, I mean, it's just yeah. like, you know, it's just like these things were just, uh, I mean, you know, just pouring out this information.
2: Yeah, that, the good examples of that would be, um, you know, The the Siren Call of Hungry Ghosts, that particular book by uh, Fisher. Mm-hmm. I can't remember his, his first that's, name, but that's a perfect example of something that seemed to be quite real, but not all the details could be verified. And, you know, if you want to look at something like the Philip experiment as it was conducted where this ghost was made out of whole cloth by a group of parapsychologists and answered these fictional questions <laughs> correctly, I think that does speak to that as well. And 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 even when, you know, we have some tantalizing clues here and there that this is something along the lines of what the phenomenon is doing. I mean, one of my favorite quotes ever is from the Shermer abduction, where, you know, the entities told the abducted police officer, um, we want you to believe in us, but not too much. I mean, that sounds like... To me, that sounds like again the the story coming to life, you know. Um, but I don't know. It's this this sort of brings in questions as well as to how much of of these phenomena exist outside of you know the the, the eyewitnesses themselves. You know? like how much of this is is generated by the percipient? Um, and you know, I, I think that I think that to really truly grasp that we probably need to overhaul our understanding of things like the physical and the non-physical and the, the real and the the fictional. Um, yeah.
3: Well, I wonder myself, um, when you talk about that, because you're, you're correct. You know, a lot of these experiences uh, tend to happen to mostly, uh, you know, uh, somebody alone or maybe two people at 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 most uh, within the the field of influence and whether or not our reality is quite as stable <laughs> as we like to think it is <laughs> right. i mean you know our minds work very hard to to keep the material world material but i wonder if it really is as stable as we like to think it is <laughs> well it is our
2: um are we governed by laws of the universe or, you know, strong suggestions
3: (laughs) of the universe.
2: (laughs) And again, you know, going back to, going back to Terrence McKenna, one of the things that he speculated was that, um, you know, our regular natural waking reality was perhaps as psychedelic as these other spaces that he went to.
1: We'll get more with Joshua, Gene and Tim. You're in the pericast.
8: Thank you for listening to GCN. Visit GCNlive.com today.
3: If you love mysteries, you'll love these two books by Tim R. Swartz and Sean Castile. In Mimics, The Others Among Us, you'll learn about the strange beings that can look like us but are not. In Alien Artifacts, Incredible Evidence of Exotic Material from UFO Encounters, you'll see the hard evidence of UFOs that has been ignored or even hidden. These books will definitely blow your mind, and both are now available on Amazon.com.
12: I need help with my taxes. Where can I find free tax help?
13: If you make $54,000 a year or less, you can participate in the IRS Volunteer Income Tax Assistance, VITA, or the Tax Counseling for the Elderly, TCE, programs. IRS-certified volunteers provide free basic tax prep for low-to-moderate income taxpayers. The TCE program is specifically for taxpayers age 60 and older. Go to irs.gov and enter free tax prep in the search box to find a VITA or TCE site
14: near you. Hey, Jimmy, turn off the video games. Let's go play some ball.
4: I'm in the middle of my game. Can't we go later?
14: Come on, it'll be fun. It will be there when you get back.
4: Okay, but there's no way you're going to win.
14: Why don't you grab some water and granola bars, and then we'll see about that.
4: You can make a difference. Eat smart, play hard. And when you do, your kids will too. A challenge from USDA.
11: Author of the UFO Encyclopedia and other books. You're
1: listening to the Paracast. All sorts of fascinating discussions. Joshua Kutch and Gene Steinberg, Tim Swartz. Joshua, you brought up very briefly Terrence McKenna. Can you amplify that, please?
2: Yeah, well, one of the things that I've, I've found interesting as one of the ideas that he put forward is that our waking consensus reality is as psychedelic as uh, some of these other spaces that he was traveling to and, and carried with it some of the um, lack of logic and nonsensicality of those other spaces. But the only reason that we are able to navigate this reality is because we are stuck in it and we have had the chance to navigate it so much. So I kind of wonder sometimes if that doesn't speak to the fact that... That these are all sort of a continuum of different realities as opposed to separate spaces.
3: But we see all the time in our own reality. And, you know, all the things that we're talking about uh, today and on, you know, all different episodes of the Paracast, just uh, really how fluid, -fluid. (laughs) non-fluid, I don't know what the term would be, but just uh, our reality can be, you know, just as strange and uh, unstuck as, uh, you know, some of these uh, psychedelic or astral realities.
2: (laughs) Yeah, it's almost as if things tend to be causal, but don't have to be causal <laughs> you know what i mean this is the sort of thing that i i really love about the ufo is that it, it does challenge these conceptions that we have about you know our existence i think if it's if the discussion is heading in the direction that i want to i find these deeper questions to be infinitely more rewarding than a lot of the technicalities that we find ourselves enmeshed in there's still a place and a need to discuss things like crash debris. I have my own opinions on what that might represent. But at the same time, I think that the the real power of the UFO is the fact that it is a confrontation to everything. Like, I don't care what your belief system is. I guess unless you believe in UFOs wholeheartedly, but it will always confront something. It will confront your fear, your loneliness, your spirituality, your science, your social structure. It It confronts everything. And I think that Sometimes I wonder, quite frankly, that that might not be the purpose of the UFO. As I've said in some recent uh, conversations, like I look at the UFO and I'm not always sure that there's a there there. But I know that there's a there here, and I see the influence that it exerts on my life. A good example of this is that I, I found myself interested in things that I probably would have never come to if not for the ufo topic i mean there's that famous Ami Michel michelle quote that he had in conversation with dr valet which was um ufo study is not necessarily scientific discipline as much as it is an initiation you start out looking at burn marks in the ground and you end up reading about ancient arab mystics um and and i love that idea because i've seen that play out in my lifetime and a time again a recent anecdote that i use is uh I found myself at a children's museum with my twin boys, and I was stuck in an exhibit that I would not normally have found that interesting. I I think it was probably the geology exhibit. And, you know, some people are really into geology, if that's your thing. I'm not trying to take it away from you. It's just it's never really been something that's grabbed my interest. But as I stood there in front of this exhibit, I was able to not even consciously, make a connection to something which made a connection to something which made a connection to some sort of other paranormal, supernatural, UFO, cryptid topic. And it made that moment, it made that display, that exhibit, so much more engaging for me. And so there has been sort of a degree of personal alchemy that I have experienced in looking at these topics that have made me, I think, you know, a a better rounded person. And has sort of rekindled an interest in a lot of these things that I normally would have dismissed quite quickly.
3: And that's absolutely the type of discussion that makes a lot of scientists pull their hair out (laughs) when it it comes to this kind of stuff, UFOs, paranormal phenomena. I mean, especially the materialists who see no connections like that. And I think that's the beauty of our minds working in this reality and possibly other realities is we're able to grasp these concepts along those lines
2: that's part of the reason that i've gravitated towards framing the ufo not within astronomy or you know physics or or science but rather through religious studies and, and looking at it through that angle because if again if you talk to the experiencers they don't seem to be especially enamored with the details of how these things get here. They seem to be more interested in those profound implications about the human soul and, and our, our role in the cosmos, and those sort of things. And those are also the messages that the UFO occupants consistently deliver. Now, whether those messages are benign or whether they're filled with lies from the occupants, uh, that is up for interpretation and debate. At the same time, it does suggest that we are, are dealing with something that has priorities far beyond some of these very technical details.
3: I think it was uh, uh, Jacques Vallee one time coined a term for that type of information coming from the other side, especially you know UFO occupants in uh, communication with people. It was meta logic. It makes no sense to us, and maybe it makes no sense. Period. But it supposedly is to plant that seed to make you look beyond. Then. What are, you know normal <laughs> causal uh, effect logic? I'm I'm sorry, I'm, I'm grasping for words. No, no here.
2: I, I I completely understand what you mean. I mean, you look at some of these messages that are delivered, and they they read like esoteric religious texts or something, mm-hmm. or you know uh, Zen coens or something. And I think that that I think that that's important. At the same time, you know, to that extent, if if we are to compare the UFO phenomenon to centuries of interaction with spirits and that's definitely a perspective that i'm sympathetic to you look at the work of someone like emmanuel swedenborg who is, still exerts an influence on the way that we think about the paranormal today who famously said that you know uh, spirits lie <laughs> they they very rarely tell you the truth um there's always some sort of ulterior motive at play you know which which arguably is um you know, consistent with fairy folklore as well. But the f- fairy folklore doesn't include lies so much as it in- includes uh, creative interpretations of the truth. You know, <laughs> like the old, uh, the old occultist's mistake. They conjure a spirit and they say, "Make me a ham sandwich," and poof, the occultist <laughs> turns into a ham sandwich. You know. <laughs> so yeah, there's there's some some playful manipulation and obfuscation uh, that always tends to go on in these contexts. But that doesn't mean we can't sort of take a look at that and say, okay, well, there seems to be some sort of motive here that doesn't necessarily align with this Bud Hopkins, David Jacobs interpretation of the phenomenon.
3: Yeah, absolutely. I mean, these communications are never just straight out providing the information that is being sought. Uh, uh, it's it's always a mash of gobbledygook, basically, uh, and you know you were talking about the spirit communications. I mean, you know, the earliest alleged. Communications with extraterrestrial beings was through channeling, automatic writing, through spiritualist mediums. I mean, back into the uh, uh, at least uh, the nineteenth century, and probably even further back than that. Yeah,
2: and, and that's something that I always try to emphasize too is that you know the the um, the genealogy, if you will. Um, the legacy of ufology is is really a, a spiritual discipline. I mean, it's it's it could very easily be seen as an outgrowth of theosophy and spiritualism. It takes very little imagination to see that. In fact, a lot of the um, early the, uh, the early early uh, contactees were you know basically spiritualists. I mean, you look at someone like Wayne Aho and the way that he was describing the phenomenon. Um, you know, it's interesting that you have been working on ITC because um, that's the Sarah Step stuff, right?
3: Yes, exactly. Yeah. So, in in terms
2: of how vague these messages are, I sometimes wonder if there isn't some sort of interdimensional gag order <laughs> going on here, <laughs> because you know, Sarah Eastev had those you know really eerie and chilling voice recordings from uh, Constantine Routave after his death. You know, these answering machine recordings, and um, they they're they're chilling and they're eerie to listen to, and they seem to offer some sort of confirmation of the survival of consciousness but it's also like constantine couldn't you have like p- spilled the beans on all the mysteries of the universe from your position in the afterlife like couldn't you have given us more details other than hey we did it good job thanks sarah bye <laughs> which is basically <laughs> the gist of those messages so it seems like um th- th- i kind of wonder sometimes if there isn't um there, there is the, the the requisite permission has not been granted from any of these things to disclose the exact mechanics by which they work or you know speaking of language like we're talking about maybe it's impossible for these entities to actually describe the nature of reality the nature their own nature in words that would make sense to us in given the restrictions that we have on language
1: we'll have more languages in our next segment we hope it's friendly language with Gene and Joshua and Tim. You're in
3: the Paracast.
8: You are listening to GCN. Visit GCNlive.com today.
1: Hey, listeners. the Paracast.plus to learn more about Paracast Plus.
15: Hi, I'm Dr. Joel Wallach, the dead doctors don't lie guy. There's no reason why you shouldn't live to be at least 100 and have a great time getting there.
0: Welcome back to the Paracast, the gold standard of paranormal radio. And now, here's Jane Steinberg.
1: This is extraordinary, this discussion going all sorts of fascinating ways. I want you listeners to continue with it. Here we go.
3: With these spirit communications, and these aren't just you know like the EVPs that you're that you've been seeing on these uh, reality programs where you know these ghost hunters have a tape recorder and they maybe are catching a word here or there that you can barely understand. No, these are dialogues of uh, very easily understood conversations that that come through over uh, radio, telephones, uh, computers, televisions, things like that. But uh, supposedly the answers that was given on why these messages are so obtuse, basically, <laughs> uh, really offering, you know, not a lot of information, is that there is that difficulty, that language difficulty of expressing oneself from whatever state of reality they're now currently in, to translate to our own, yeah, it's easy to say that.
2: <laughs> what if what if a spoken word for these other things is as difficult for them as telepathy is for us? You know, I mean, right. That's that's right. the possibility, or or you know, the other possibility, and I, and I often return to this, and it's keeping with that sort of personal development angle of an interest in the supernatural, the paranormal, or UFOs, is that. It's not the point to receive all of your answers in an info dump. You know, the point is to arrive upon those conclusions yourself. I mean, I think that's what to me that the true nature of disclosure really should be is is you don't need an authority structure to give you permission to believe in UFOs. Right. You need to convince yourself and you need to arrive at that conclusion through your own efforts that push you past that threshold of disbelief into saying, okay, you know, even if I haven't experienced something, there seems to be something with an objective ontology that is that is happening here and is actually interacting with people. And then, you know, you proceed from there. But it's it's all about getting to that point. I mean, you know, what's <laughs> what's more impressive? Someone saying they love you or someone showing they love you? You can't just learn that the UFOs are real. You have to sort you can't just be told rather that these things are real. You have to sort of Get there yourself, I think, sometimes. I think that might be part of what we're seeing as well.
3: Well, that's part of that uh, Western bias, though, when it comes to learning. I mean, when we were kids, starting when we were kids, you were given the information, you have to memorize it, and then regurgitate it back in order to pass the test. There's no <laughs> yep, real yep. learning.
2: Yeah, I mean, it's, it's absolutely a part of that. You know, it's it's sort of a bit of a cliche, but there's a difference between being told what to think and learning how to think. If we've come to that realization over here, on this side of whatever reality we're all occupying, then, you know, maybe indeed something like that is, is related to that as well. For anybody who's wondering how we started out Talking about UFOs, and now we're on <laughs> EVPs and ITC. I mean, one of the most interesting developments I think that's happened in this connection over the past couple of years is uh, the fact that um, Whitley Strieber's assessment of the implant that he has has shifted necessarily from being, you know, a, an implant left by the visitors. I mean, it's obviously connected somehow, but he's arrived at the conclusion that it was. He was told, after some strangers visited his house in the middle of the night, that the implant was actually technology that was designed by Constantine Raudevay after Raudevay's death. And there's just so much to unpack from that. I don't know if he's reassessed his interpretation of what's going on there or not, Whitley, in the years since he wrote, you know, A New World. But I think that there's so much to unpack about what that says about something like our assumptions of what the afterlife is, right? Like the fact that you can... Create blueprints in the afterlife is not something that really squares very well with a lot of these Western conceptions of what the afterlife is. Like, you know, especially if you come from the Abrahamic traditions, like, you know, you die and, you know, you go and play a harp among the clouds or something to that effect. You know, obviously that's a cartoonized version, but you take my meaning. It's not someplace where you have technical concerns like you know what sort of circuitry or technology could be put together but it's actually really consistent with a lot of these um ancient and indigenous concepts of the afterlife where the afterlife was a mirror image of our reality and it had you know the same trials and the same chores and tasks that we have to go through on this side of the veil. And with that in mind, um, it seems only logical that there could be the potential for technological development <laughs> in the afterlife. Again, it's not an idea, you know, afterlife technology is not an idea that really sits very well with a lot of us in the modern world, but it's something that our ancestors understood as as a definite possibility.
3: It's funny that you would talk about Radovay like that, because for the past week, that's all that I have been researching and writing about is these contacts and especially dealing with Rodave and his, wow. his his appearances so i mean yeah that's quite a coincidence and one of the major aspects you know of these communications is exactly like you said that supposedly on the other side they're working on technology like we are in order to better develop communications, you know, between, between the sides. And that, uh, you know, whatever level of reality that they're working on, to us, it would look like that stereotypical image of, you know, like a misty, dreamlike world. But to them, it's as solid of a reality as ours is. But as they describe it, like a lower astral plane, and then after... They deal with whatever they have to deal with, and they, you know, ascend to, you know, whatever they they ascend to. But at that moment, they're working with technology just like we are.
2: It harkens back to that speculation from Terrence McKenna that we mentioned earlier that these are mm-hmm. uh, there. There is no real hierarchy to to these different realities. They are all possessed of their own sort of internal logic. It's just that we just are familiar with the logic of the one that we're embedded within. Once you start looking at that. And uh, I don't know how much we talked about this last time I was on the show, but once you start looking at that and you set it alongside all the death connections that there are to the UFO phenomenon, you know, to the extent that Ann Strieber before her death, wrote down, made the observation that this has something to do with what we call death. This referring to, you know, the the visitors and dead loved ones seen during alien abductions. Then the possibility of you know, flying saucers being afterlife technology takes on a certain validity. And and I know that, you know, even saying this, some people are so resistant to this idea, but it's a really, really, really old idea if you look back into ufology. I mean, I've, I've found examples of it being discussed in the 50s and the 60s. And it seems to be even older than that as a concept. I mean, if you look at the ayahuasca art of Pablo Amaringo, it includes things that look like flying saucers and uh, when asked about what they were emarino was very clear that they they were a technology for traveling between these different realities and of course ayahuasca presents a lot of connections to the dead to the extent that depending upon your translation of its of its name means you know vine of the spirits or vine of the dead and there are all sorts of examples of people encountering the dead or learning information about new deaths um, during their ayahuasca experiences that are later confirmed when they reach contact with the towns that they're nearest to or, you know, contact with their their relatives who have to report that, yes, (laughs) you already knew that your brother died, and I'm here to tell you that your brother died. So how did you know that? (laughs) That's sort of a scenario. So I I I think it's interesting, and you know what? It may be a dead-end in a blind alley, it might just be little green men from Zebul Gnubi. It really might be that. Um, <laughs> but I think that, um, at the very least, this phenomenon is is playing with our expectations and playing with our mythologies in a way that does tie back to these deep, deep archetypal themes that you see across every culture around the world.
3: The uh, the late Doctor Leo Sprinkle. Wrote about uh, several cases that he worked on where um, people who had been abducted by you know, alleged uh, aliens said that they were told by these uh, uh, extraterrestrials that their mode of transportation used um, traveling through other realities.
1: We are going to go to this other reality with Gene, Joshua, and Tim you're in. The
3: Paracast.
1: Hey listeners, I want you to have the entire Paracast experience. So I'd like to tell you about After the Paracast. After the Paracast is an exclusive feature for subscribers to the Paracast Plus. Once again, theparacast.plus. Prices are just $1.50 a week, less than a cup of coffee at your local convenience store. Check out theparacast.plus
7: to learn more about Paracast Plus. If you're concerned about the power grid and want to generate your own supply of off-grid electricity, this will be the most important message you'll hear this year. Here's why. We now have a small number of solar generators back in stock.
5: We'd like to hear from you. If you have
0: a comment or question about the Paracast, send it to news at theparacast.com. That's news at theparacast.com. And don't forget to visit our famous Paracast community forums at forum.theparacast.com.
1: When you mention this travel through other realities, Tim, it sounds like the wormholes they use like in Stargate TV show, things like that.
3: Well, when I when I say that, Doctor Sprinkle was told that these other realities included what we would call uh, the afterlife, the places that you know that that you know the human spirit goes to after we die. That's just one of the levels that uh, the ships travel through in order to get from point A to point B. Doctor Sprinkle was, uh, I mean. He put it more in a, you know, in a materialistic type of viewpoint that these were physical crafts that just used, what what would the word be, you know, like uh, uh, being able to travel the vast distances by, you know, uh, going through these uh, uh, different uh, vibrational states, I suppose. Uh, but it, it harkens back to a lot of what we've been uh, talking about uh, today in, in in this conversation.
2: Yeah, I really think that Leo Sprinkles' work uh, deserves to be talked about more. Um, the book that I think has the most bearing on on what I've been looking at over the past several years is, you know, Soul Samples, and he talks about in that book, um, you know, just the incidents of past life revelations involving UFOs, and this is this is something that was a real catalyst for me working on Ecology of Souls was the fact that. I want to have an explanation of the phenomenon that brings in as many outliers as possible. What I mean by that is I don't want to plug my ears and close my eyes when I hear a story that doesn't conform to my model of what's going on, right? Especially if it's coming from an experiencer who's – I have this habit of believing experiencers. Imagine that. But – I want to find a way to sort of reconcile and integrate some of these stories and I feel like there is a segment of the ufological community um that hears something about past lives or pre-birth memories and, and they just they would prefer to ignore them because they don't neatly conform to the extraterrestrial hypothesis. And if they if they do, if you find a way to shoehorn it in, it makes your extraterrestrial hypothesis a really weird <laughs> extraterrestrial <laughs> hypothesis. <laughs> And you know, so and I'm not I'm not sitting here saying that I like I love those stories because I had the same reaction as well, and it wasn't coming from any sort of deep seated ideological or religious impulse to reject those those accounts. It was just I, I, I had trouble with those stories because I didn't know how to integrate them into to my perspective on the phenomenon, and I think that you do have to end up. I think that the most maybe not the easiest. But the most comprehensive way is to engage with these concepts of consciousness and, you know, dare I say, you know, rebirth and death, which, again, that's part of the reason that Ecology of Souls taken as a whole is 260,000 words is because there are so many connections that you can draw. Just from that one simple um, guiding light, you can draw a lot of different connections uh, between these different phenomena, rather.
3: Kenneth Arnold. Um, after a while, you know, he was the, he was the guy who you know started the whole modern UFO era. After a while, he came to believe that, uh, or you know, at least he speculated that uh, that UFOs were actually soul transporters, <laughs> that they were here to take the souls of the dead away, almost like, you know, the uh, river sticks, you know, put the coin in your mouth and away you go.
2: Yeah, he would He would consistently, I mean, I believe that his initial sighting was during his one of his search and rescue outings, and he would oftentimes see, he had seen later in his life, from what I understand, some of these um, anomalous lights around some of the wreckage, or at least Around one of the wreck sites, some residents had seen some of these anomalous lights. So that certainly influenced that interpretation that he had. And uh, you know, I, I think that he—I've also heard that he um, entertained the idea of uh, sort of Trevor James Constable-style sky critters at, at one point. Um, mm-hmm. and, you know, we're, we're all entitled—we're all entitled to have shifting and, and uh, malleable interpretations of this because we're all grasping at straws. But yeah, I do think it's interesting that the person who um, the person who sort of triggered the modern ufo era arrived at that conclusion and again if you go back through the contactees like it's it's hard it gets hard to find a contactee who didn't incorporate something like reincarnation or soul craft or or something into their into their early stories i mean it's it's littered with with allusions to that um you know what what I think is sort of interesting about Kenneth Arnold, too, um that really does harken back again to part of our earlier discussion is that uh, you know it's it's much has been discussed over the fact that Arnold did not describe saucers in terms of shape. He was describing the movement, as I'm sure both of you are aware. But what I think is interesting is that the phenomenon <laughs> to go with a good story, the phenomenon answered that misprint that misinterpretation by becoming saucers
12: <laughs> like i think that's
2: mm-hmm. i think that says a lot about the phenomenon in the fact that it sort of it's sort of conformed to the expectations that arose out of that that particular uh, report um and yeah it just it just seems to be that we're dealing with something that is is very fluid um in this regard um Tim, I, I want to, if if I might, sort of turn the the tables on this a little bit. I think this might Absolutely. be something interesting to discuss because I just realized this. Um, did you not author or co-author a book on Morgellons with Tim Beckley, or is that, or am I misremembering that?
3: Nope, you're right. I did. Back when right. uh, uh, Morgellons was a thing, <laughs>
2: <laughs> okay. Well, okay. Well, is is there some sort of update on Morgellons that I am not aware of?
3: You know, I have not heard anything about it for quite a while. I think the general consensus, much like a lot of this stuff, unless there is you know fresh evidence constantly coming down, was that it was. Either a mass hysteria, or a common form of—and I don't want to say mental delusion—but uh, uh, a, a very common uh, 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 mental ailment where people feel mm-hmm. like that they're either covered in bugs or they have they have parasites that mm-hmm. are gnawing away at their inside. Uh, okay. Uh, Go ahead. <laughs> oh, no, I, I would like to inject some uncertainty
2: into that assessment. Um, Please. So I was, I was I was looking through some old blog posts, and I don't blog in terms of just writing an original piece as much as I should or as much as I used to. But um, – so I, I've I, anyway in this old blog post I, I found a reference to your name and I'm like oh I've I completely forgot that that Tim had written this book um, but I had I had pulled on it because um, I was discussing the moment when I decided that um, the UFO phenomenon and the fairy phenomenon were the same thing you know for the longest time i would sort of equivocate and say well maybe it's similar or it's using similar methods but this was the moment when i said okay this is the same thing
1: here is something that's different or something completely different however you wish it joshua jean tim you're in the
3: pericast
8: thank you for listening to gcn Be sure to visit GCNlive.com today.
10: News update.
7: I think this was a crime of opportunity. He did not know her at all.
10: New information from University of Georgia Police Chief Jeff Clark about the suspect accused of killing a University of Georgia nursing student who was out for a jog near the campus in the town of Athens.
7: The investigation suggests that they had no relationship.
10: Records show the 26 year old man, an illegal alien from Venezuela who crossed into our country back in 2022. Chief Clark saying the man faces a a long list of charges. This, by the way, the first murder on the UGA campus in 20 years. Classes canceled until Monday. In other news, polls are open in South Carolina. Voters casting ballots in the Republican primary. Former President Trump has been campaigning in the Palmetto State, along with former South Carolina Governor Nikki Haley. And I'm Laura Winters, USA News.
4: My Patriot Supply is the nation's largest emergency preparedness company, and they make it easy for you to prepare. Prepare today. Go to MyPatriotSupply.com. MyPatriotSupply.com.
3: Hi, this is Don Ecker, and you are tuned into the Paracast. Let me tell you what. You're going to hear stuff here that you probably won't hear anywhere else. Hear that, George Snorri?
1: We could tell you Joshua Cutchin on the relationship of UFOs and uh, fairy lore. Pray tell me more about fairy lore.
2: I'm extremely grateful for you cutting me off because this is going to be a little bit long. I've compiled lists over the years of of all the correspondences that I see and and they've pushed me over into believing that these are indeed the same thing, and not that fairies are aliens or aliens are fairies, but that again, as consistent with our discussion, these are terms that we use but but neither of them really accurately describes the thing itself, right but they're they're the same thing, but our interpretation is culturally bound. But the the moment that I I really came to appreciate uh, that these were the same thing was when I discovered references to the Fairy Blast. And if um, you're not aware, the Fairy Blast is a boil or an injury or, you know, a uh, lesion or something that the fairies could inflict upon you if you were to disrespect them. The words blast, blister, and blustery all share the same Germanic root, and that's because the fairies would blast you with a blustery current of wind and leave behind a blister, right? There are narratives where these fairy blasts um, were examined and the wound was let. When they were opened up, it would reveal all sorts of just detritus, you know, bones, moths, teeth, rags, rusty nails, bits of porcelain, rocks, etc. And, and to me, that sounds strikingly like the alien implant phenomenon. And the alien implant phenomenon, I think, has a lot of antecedents with indigenous beliefs and spirit darts and foreign objects. I mean, that's an entire another discussion we could have. But specifically looking at the fairy stuff, the fairy blast sounds a lot like these implants because so many times these implants are... Excised, And what's inside is often revealed to be something like a bit of porcelain that gets, you know, jabbed under the skin and accretes all sorts of calcium deposits around it. But here's where the the narrative grew especially uncanny for me. I found a reference to a fairy blast uh, in Newfoundland, which was one of the places in the New World where fairy lore made the transition from the old world quite intact. There was a gentleman who uh, was hit with the fairy blast. They decided they were going to open it up because he had offended the fairies in some regard. They concluded that the boil should be let and proceeded to do so. As soon as the boil was pierced, a long white string came out Mm -hmm. and continued to fall in a pile to the floor. It fell of its own accord, and the swelling abated as the string accumulated on the floor. The string was kept for years after as proof for unbelievers, but the man always had a crippled leg to his dying day." That sounds awfully more y to me. <laughs> um, it's just so bizarre and specific. It does make me wonder if, if there is something objectively real to the whole Morgellons phenomenon, if that's not somehow related, or an expression of that, an earlier expression of that. And I was wondering if you'd ever heard that story, because I realized that I'd put it together and I'd referenced your book, but I don't know if I'd ever talked to you about that.
3: Mm-hmm. I have heard that story before, and even though I d- I'm not sure if I use the term fairy blast, but I had pointed out that, uh, like some of these older accounts, that the Morgellons could also afflict other family members as well. That oftentimes, you know, the fairies would target one person, but then other people in the household could get it as well. Uh, Not to the same extent, but it could happen and morgellons tended to be contagious that other family members would get it though usually it wasn't like a long continuous string thank god <laughs> well, that's fascinating
2: that you point that out because you know i look at the incidence of people having strange encounters after their initiatory experience i guess is the best way to put it you know looking at people who've had near death experiences and people who um have encountered fairy folk or gone to fairyland in the older narratives, and and UFO experiencers. And it seems to me as if as if the UFO experience, whatever it represents, the aftermath of that manifesting. Poltergeist phenomena and things like that seems to be a lot stronger and far more contagious. And that's the mm. interesting thing. Like, you know, you can just sort of just be around these, these experiencers sometimes and have the effect rub off on you. So that's interesting to me that, that Morgellons would follow that same pattern. And of course, you know, as you said, like the consensus would be that, oh, well, it's hereditary somehow, but I wonder if it's not just sort of an expression of, these phenomena sort of, or these after effects radiating out from the experiencer, that's, that's fast. Well, I shouldn't have been surprised that you had heard of it. That to me is, is my bread and butter. When I look at the 14 stuff is, you know, because I, I don't think a lot of Morgellon sufferers would have heard That narrative, and yet it sounds so consistent with that older stuff. And you know, that's always the fascinating thing is you get a, a farmer from Nebraska who's saying stuff that sounds like it was pulled straight off of a Mesopotamian cuneiform tablet. <laughs> and it's like, uh, I don't think that they were reading this. So why is this appearing once again? Yeah.
3: Well, and in case our listeners aren't familiar with Morgellons, it was an ailment where people would have basically what they would describe almost as like um, hairs growing out of their body at various points. A lot of times out of lesions, it would start out as like itchy lesions on the body, and then there would be these hairs that would avoid being plucked. (laughs) People would, you know, like uh, try to take tweezers to them and these things would move around and duck back down into the skin. Unfortunately, when people would uh, get samples and try to take them to dermatologists, they would be dismissed because, again, it's a common ailment that doctors often referred to it as a ma- the matchbox ailment because people would uh, collect them and put them in matchboxes to take to their doctors. And most of the mm. time it would just be, you know, like uh, threads, other types of synthetic types of, of materials. But there was a lot of research done where it obviously was not a commonly household type of item that had just, you know, gotten onto their skins. Well, that's interesting,
2: too, about the way that it sort of proves elusive when trying to be pinned down, because, you know, that's, as you're aware, something that happens in the, the implant stuff as well. But if you look back, I've, I've been looking with someone else on some of these older stories of foreign objects in the body, and there one of my colleagues found that there was a, uh, a story of a Christian monk or, or saint or something along those lines who believed that they had received a, a dart from the devil. And it was, you know, it manifested as like this P-shaped, a lump under the skin that would sort of move around whenever you tried to pin it down. So, there, there, this, that idea of these things sort of like slipping out of the way at the last moment is is really consistent too. That's that's wild. And, and you know, I don't something else that we probably should all grapple with more than we do. I've used grapple like eight times in our conversation, but something we should acknowledge, something we should acknowledge more than we do. Um, you know what? We can the change the name that, of this yeah. show to the grappling show. <laughs> I like it. I like it. The grapple cast um, is ladies is and gentlemen,
1: he, welcome to the grapple cast where we grapple with <laughs> casting or casting our grasp or grip or have the grip or something like that.
2: <laughs> um, we should we should we should acknowledge. How about the acknowledge cast? We should acknowledge the fact that any of these topics has a lot of different answers. You know, um, and this is this is a trap that I fall into often as well. You know, oh, UFOs must all be one thing, or you know, all be another thing, and um, there are a lot of answers to these things. And I'm sure that um, there are there is a plurality of anomalous answers, There's a plurality of mundane answers, and a plurality of anomalous answers to all these things. So. You know uh, the UFO phenomenon not, might be answered by, in some cases, extraterrestrial craft; in other cases, um, mass psychic phenomena, spirit phenomena, any number of strange things. But also, um, you know, unexplained or unrecognized meteorological phenomena, or misidentifications, or unorthodox aircraft. I mean, it's it's probably a constellation of examples, and I think something like Morgellons might represent that as well. You know, especially if there is that 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 angle or that. Um, Influence that mass hysteria seems to have exerted on the phenomena.
1: We've got so much mass hysteria that we can't even figure it out anymore. <laughs> Let us continue with Gene, Tim, Joshua, you're in
3: the podcast.
8: Thank you for listening to GCN.
0: more at Rockoids.com. That's
5: Rockoids. R-O-C-K-O-I-D-S.com. February is Heart Month, and every year Extendivite has a sale. This year is no different. Extendivite is regularly sixty nine ninety five plus shipping and handling for a two month supply. In February, Extendivite is only fifty seven fifty for a two month supply plus shipping and handling. That's X-T-E-N-D-O-V-I-T-E dot com. Extend your life with ExtendoVite.
15: Hi, I'm Dr. Joel Wallach, the dead doctors don't lie guy. There's no reason why you shouldn't live to be at least 100 and have a great time getting there.
3: This is Tracy Torme, screenwriter, producer. You're listening to Paracast, the gold standard of paranormal radio.
1: We are moving so fast into such interesting territory here that if you think you've been looking for spaceships for, for low these many years and UFOs, you're now going into another reality altogether because maybe we live in a simulated reality. That occurs to me, you know. You know, I'm thinking now about this new product from Apple, the Apple Vision Pro. And it's virtual reality glasses on steroids. Instead of steroids being on virtual reality glasses, where you take steroids to use them. But you go into another reality with these ugly things. Have you ever seen the picture of the Apple Vision Pro, Joshua?
2: I have, and I've seen some of the uh, the recreations of what it looks like. I have not seen one in the flesh or in the metal, I guess. <laughs> is that something you want to do after seeing it? I mean, I'd like to try it. I'm not ready to uh, hand over that much cash, but I would, I would love to try it at some point. I mean, I think it's interesting. I think that there are still some insurmountable issues that virtual reality will have trouble getting over. Apparently, motion sickness is still an issue, um, and I don't know how we... We quite get over that to the next um, step of interfacing in a completely virtual environment, short of, you know, wiring directly into the brain. I think that if you're going to have a true virtual reality experience that includes all of the senses, it's probably going to have to go in that direction. That's also something that I'm not going to volunteer for. So Yeah, I'm
1: thinking here of the TV show Farscape, where they had what well, is their version of a human an extraterrestrial that looks like a human, a sebation, I think they call them, where he plugs into this living spaceship with this probe that goes on the back of his head. So maybe that's what it's going to be, but I cannot see the this is a pun, Apple Vision Pro today. I think the experience would be extraordinary, but I agree with the New York Times reviewer that you mentioned that he got kind of nauseous. Also, when you're out of it there, you can't walk in the street with those things, I hope. You certainly can't drive a car with those things, I sincerely hope, although I think people are going to do it. The other thing, though, it has to be fitted to your particular shape and eyesight, which means basically if oh, I buy one up, for yeah. myself at $3,500 US, my wife wants one, it's another 3500 My son who, you know, lives by himself, he's 38. Although some people may disagree with that, he would have to buy one too. So we're talking here about $10,500 for three people. If you're a family of six, it's
2: $21,000. I mean, can you spell absurd? <laughs> well absurd and convenient. That's the other word. Oh, isn't that convenient? It's non-transferable. I think it's interesting, you know, I, I was I was listening again as I was working on the coursework uh for this near death experience course. I was I had playing in the background another Terrence McKenna lecture, as it happens to be. And he made the statement, and I think part of this is holding true, and I can't quite see how the other part is, but he you know, this is very early in, in the modern internet era. He was very quaintly de- describing the potential of websites, and it's kind of charming to listen back to that. But, you know, the late 90s or something like that. And he uh, made a statement or a declaration that drugs would get more like computers and computers would get more like drugs. And I said, okay, well, half of that statement certainly holding true. You know, you look at sort of the themes of addiction that run through social media use and the way that these um, – means of interfacing online are really changing personal and collective psyches. He seems to be spot on about one half of that. I'm not entirely sure how drugs are getting more like computers, but, you know, perhaps that's an allusion to some of these designer drugs that we've seen that are sort of pharmacological Frankenstein uh, concoctions. But the computers getting more like drugs seems to be a very prescient observation,
1: well, soon we'll take a computer for an aspirin instead of an aspirin. So I have a headache. Let me take a computer. In fact, I'll take three or four because I have a really bad headache.
2: Well, if they get much smaller, you know, I mean, there has been, there have been those allusions to, you know, nanotechnology. It's been promised and just over the horizon for decades now, the idea that you could swallow a capsule that has tiny technology in it that'll cure all your ailments. You know, we'll see if that ever manifests. It is interesting to sort of see how many of his predictions did and didn't, you know, come true. One of the things that he got a lot of grief for was placing a lot of emphasis on 2012 and, you know, his um, time wave zero theory. And, you know, looking back at the past 14 years, I'm not sure if that wasn't an inflection point of some sort um, in terms of the way that we interact as a society. I mean, one of the other things that he said was he just – he had this um, intuition that we would begin to suffer from more and more novelty and things will eventually get so novel they'll seem just absolutely insane and they'll make be
3: completely nonsensical and, and I'm like, Well, yeah, we're kinda there, Terry, aren't we? We're kinda there. Twenty-four. I had somebody suggest to me one time talking about us living in a, you know, simulation, whether or not it is our reality is a natural simulation, or somebody else is doing it. But that a lot of what we would call strange phenomena are actually just bugs in the system. I've
2: probably said this on the Paracast before, but I'll I'll reiterate it. I tend to have little patience for the simulation hypothesis as a metaphor. I think it's probably quite accurate. You know, you look to things like the um, veil of Maya and in Hindu belief, and you know, this is often alluded to in other cosmologies that this reality is not as it seems. This is the domain of lies and deception that we're all existing in and not the actual truth. So as a metaphor, I'm quite sympathetic to it. My problem comes when people talk about the level of reality that is superimposed above this one. So like the sort of base reality, that's not the simulation that we're in because inevitably I find a lot of folks, not all of them, but a lot of folks tend to tend to couch that superimposed reality in terms that are, just like our reality. <laughs> in other words, they're saying things like, oh, you'll wake up and you'll be sitting, you know, in front of a computer that was plugged into your head and there'll be other people there and they'll say, wow, that was an amazing program that we ran on your brain. And it's like, well, if, if this reality is superpositioned above our reality, then why does it look anything like this reality at all? So if, if you take it non-literally, not as like, you know, just a A regurgitation of the Matrix. Um, If you take it, if you take it non-literally, and that you know, maybe we'll all wake up from you know, the world's longest DMT trip or something <laughs> or some sort of psychedelic altered state of consciousness, then yeah, I, I'm I'm sympathetic to it. And when it comes down to being like, oh no, this is a video game, like a literal video game that we're all in embedded within, I I kind of think that has a that carries with it a level of presumption about what that higher reality entails and, and the nature of it. If that makes any degree of sense at all.
3: It reminds me, and I just I just read this recently somebody's personal you know near death experience where they said that uh, after they left their body uh, they had had a heart attack and had been in the hospital they ended up in what seemed to be another hospital bed in a, uh, uh, a much brighter, you know, that, that uh, ubiquitous glowing white type of, of clinic. But uh, surrounding his bed were the same little blue guys that Whitley Strieber described during his mm. initial encounters. And he... he this guy asked asked them, you know, like, you know, who are you? Where am I? And they were like laughing at him and saying, "Oh, he doesn't remember us." <laughs> <laughs> that's
2: interesting because that's consistent with, um, you know, one of the people that uh, Whitley corresponded with or spoke to, rather, um, who talked, you know, at length about the uh, the Blue kobolds was um Lori Barnes, and and she made the illusion that they were soul techs. In other words, hmm. they um they sort of were the uh, Hands-on mechanics of the human soul, and that certainly seems sounds like they're fulfilling a role similar to that. in that anecdote—that's interesting.
3: Mm-hmm. Well, then, of course, then there—he you know, was approached then by you know somebody uh, uh, like a a male who asked, "Well, how was it?" You know, asking about how you know what <laughs> what happened to him on Earth was you know like how was it? You just left, now you're back again. I mean, and you do,
2: yeah, sorry go ahead.
3: No, no, I was just going to say, you are talking about, you know, the uh, 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 real-world uh, uh, simulations. Uh, uh, that story just came to my mind when he asked, well, how was it? <laughs> well,
2: there is this whole subset of stories that you read, especially in, you know, the, the psychedelic trip accounts of of people who um experience entire lives while they're under the influence, you know, where they uh, – they have families and children and friends, and then they come back to to our reality. They come out of their trip and they're like, "I, I miss those people." Like they're actually heartbroken after that experience. Um, some of the uh, stories that I find simultaneously hilarious and terrifying are um, some people who have um, smoked salvia divinorum have have said that uh, you know they they have these experiences where they spend 15 years underneath a staircase as a bit of unused luggage more luggage to take with
1: joshua jean and tim you
2: the pedicast <laughs>
8: Thank you for listening to GCN. Visit GCNlive.com today.
3: Do you love reading about the mysteries of the universe? Do you wonder what secrets are hidden in the shadows of our own planet? If so, you won't want to miss these two amazing books by Tim R. Swartz and Sean Castile. In Mimics, the Others Among Us, you'll explore the world of the mimics of man, beings that can look like us but are not, They've been among us since the beginning of history, hiding in plain sight, influencing our culture in ways we can scarcely imagine. In Alien Artifacts, Incredible Evidence of Exotic Material from UFO Encounters, you'll discover the so-called hard evidence of UFOs that's been available for study this entire time, but for the most part, has been ignored. These two books will open your eyes to a hidden reality that has been right in front of our eyes all along. That's Mimics, The Others Among Us, and Alien Artifacts, Incredible Evidence of Exotic Material from UFO Encounters by Tim R. Schwartz and Sean Castile. Available now on Amazon.com.
0: To the Paracast, the gold standard of paranormal radio. And now, here's Jane Steinberg.
1: So the great L word for luggage. I like the way you compare one thing with another, Joshua. Please go on.
3: Oh,
2: well, I was just going to say, you know, it's it's. I've heard those narratives. I've also heard about you know spending multiple years as. Um, the the top cover on a bed (laughs) and it's just like that sounds that sounds like i i I know that i would not come back from that experience intact (laughs) like i would Mm. come back from that absolutely fried um so yeah but it plays into this idea you know the the duration of those experiences certainly speaks i think to a consistency that you see across all these different encounters which is time dilation contraction missing time whatever you want to call it i mean It doesn't get discussed as much uh, beyond, you know, the UFO trope of missing time, but uh, it's something that was, you know, a hallmark of fairy folklore, of course. You know, you'd spend a a night with the fairies and you'd return and find that generations had passed since you were there. But you also find allusions to it in the near-death experience testimony of survivors. Um, Typically in those scenarios, they experience more time while dead than they experienced in our reality. But you do, you know, you see a time discrepancy there. You'll find it in uh, psychedelic trips, as I alluded to. It, it certainly seems to happen in dreams. I can't tell you the number of times I've dozed off and thought that I was dreaming for a long time, and I wake up and it's the same scene, or or I doze off and think it's only a moment, and wake up and the credits are rolling. But uh, I've collected some interesting examples of that, even in some of the ghost literature or some of the ghost stories. I um, it's not even literature because it was shared to me directly. There was a paranormal investigator whom I spoke with out of Charlotte, North Carolina, who was investigating a allegedly haunted gas station. And they said that it was a very dull night. Um, nothing at all happened the entire night. That was out of the ordinary, with the exception of when they got home. And uh, they had made it a point. They were very fastidious about putting new batteries into all of their equipment. And then when they got home, they discovered that all the batteries in their equipment were corroded as if they mm. – been in there for years and that there's not a mechanism or you know there's not a, a factor that I'm aware of that could make that happen over the course of several hours in, in one night except for you know just the passage of time and then you know in the in the UFO um, in UFO stories uh, we have this trope of missing time where you know people think that only a couple of minutes have passed and hours have passed, and that's been something of a contentious issue. You know, I know that uh, Jerome Clark uh, made it a point to say, oh, well, you know, Valet wants to compare that to the missing time scene in Fairyland, but it seems as if this is just pure amnesia in the UFO literature, and and you know I I'm sympathetic to that. In some in some cases, it seems like that's what's going on, and we even have allusions to you know the UFO occupants administering some sort of technique or some sort of substance that facilitates amnesia. But we do have stories where there does seem to be a real time discrepancy involved. You know where where it actually is a, a time anomaly in these encounters. Um, there's a couple, three that I think of right off the top of my head, and I only remember the name of one experiencer. But I these these are pulled from the literature. Um, the first of which was a a truant young man who was not at school, and he'd slipped into the woods, and he encountered some little gnome like people, and next to their craft, and uh, he is approached moments later by the schoolmaster who's telling him that you know they've been searching for him for hours and it's now dark even though only a few minutes have passed and interestingly enough the boy's watch had not shown that it was hours later but only minutes later as well so to me that sort of suggests that there's an actual temporal distortion going on there there's another case i believe the gentleman's name is was jerry armstrong although i might be i might have that wrong because i'm doing this off the top of my head but um he was also a recurring experiencer and in one of his first encounters um he was uh, again <laughs> skipping school and he was smoking um and he was uh he was smoking a cigarette and all of a sudden everything around him goes dark like as if it you know hours have passed in the blink of an eye yet his cigarette is still smoking so again that suggests that there's something time related going on there and then you know we're always talking about missing time but there's an example of found time or gained time i guess the one that I always cite is uh, the experience of Ray Hernandez, who, you know, led the uh, the free study in terms of looking at the experiences of people who have uh, had these different contact modalities. And uh, Ray tells a story about being uh, stuck in stop-and-go traffic in Miami and having this vision of a a wheel with all these different spokes of contact coming out from it and him being at the center of this wheel. And in this, you know, ecstatic vision, for lack of a better term, he feels like 15 minutes passed. But, you know, um, stop-and-go traffic is slow, but it's not necessarily slow enough to just sort of, you know, lose your sense of where you are for 15 minutes. So there seems to be sort of a an instance of gained time in that case so again as we were discussing earlier about there being multiple explanations for things i think that um in some cases this is indeed amnesia and in other cases it actually is time behaving differently in the presence of these uh in the presence of these intelligences
3: yeah gained time is something that you don't hear as often as the the missing time uh, I worked on a case of uh, a couple of women in Ohio who were uh, coming going home after a day of shopping and uh, uh, had, uh, had a UFO fly overhead. And uh, they experienced like a brief moment of the Oz effect uh, where everything went silent around them and then it flew away. Well, when they got home, they got home about a half hour earlier than they should have.
2: Hmm. That is that is fascinating. I mean, yeah, I, I've only run into a handful of those, so i would I would love to touch base with you at some point um, if you if you can recall where you heard that um, and, sure. and add add it to my own um, list of references because I I I think that those are interesting as well. Um, yeah, it, it's something that you do see. I mean, obviously, that's kind of what's going on. In the lion's share of near-death experiences, where people think that they're gone for hours or days while dead, and they're only gone—you know—they're only clinically dead for ten or fifteen minutes—and um, you do see some variations on that, and some in some fairy stories as well. So, interesting, very interesting. But the question
1: I would ask here, which is kind of obvious, is the perception of different time—is that your imagination at work or something else? It's like you know the missing time phenomenon. I remember there was. One episode of Stargate SG-1, they might have actually had a couple of episodes on it, where externally time is moving at a different rate than internally in a spacecraft. And they're being fired upon, and the blast is just about to hit them when they pull this time stick until they figure a way to get out of the way in the meantime. And it's kind of involved. It was the last episode of the show, so I won't give you the spoiler Okay.
2: <laughs> no, I think that's a that's a really good point though, Gene. I think that, that also needs to be taken into consideration. At one point I considered writing, you know, the definitive guide to missing time, but um I have a friend who works at JPL and I was trying to get them to explain to me time dilation when traveling at light speed and um I couldn't get the terms, you know, dilation and contraction, straight, so I kind of abandoned that project. And time stuff makes my head hurt. You know, I mean, that's that's the biggest missing piece in uh, ecology of souls, in particular, is that um, I'm convinced that time does play a role in these experiences. I just am not uh, intellectually equipped to tackle it. <laughs> but yeah, it, it's um, a good example of that. Is um, uh, Dr. Mike Masters, who's been talking about the possibility of UFO occupants being us visiting from the future. And, you know, I, I, I had the good uh, good fortune of speaking and, and uh, hanging out with uh, Dr. Masters for a while this past December. And uh, it's interesting because uh, you'd think that his interpretation of the phenomenon as people from the future and my interpretation of, of the phenomenon as um you know, having something to do with the dead and ancestors and all that sort of thing. You'd think that those would be diametrically opposed, but I think that they're really kind of the same, the same, uh, interpretation. It's, um, just a matter of where on the timeline you're viewing the phenomenon, you know, before we go on, I should
1: mention we had Dr. Michael P. Masters on the Powercast, January 24th, 2021. And I really hope that will work to get him back on the show because so many questions and so much more has come up about time possibilities and so much in pop culture time travel uh, so whether it happens with a side effect or none hmm we've got Tim we've got Joshua and I'm Gene you're in the PEDICAST <laughs>
5: Hi, I'm your host, Smokey Cole Bear. Fillin' in for Smokey, cause after 75 years of... Only you can prevent wildfires. Turns out there's much more to say. Nearly 90% of wildfires are caused by us humans being careless. Dumping our used barbecue coals willy-nilly. Guess the song was wrong. We did start the fire. That's why I respect Mother Nature and her trees. Whether coniferous or new car scented. Brought to you by the U.S. Forest Service, your state forester, and the Ad Council.
0: we'd like to hear from you if you have a comment or question about the paracast send it to news at theparacast.com that's news at theparacast.com and don't forget to visit our famous paracast community forums at forum.theparacast.com
1: so continuing our discussion you mentioned the work joshua of dr michael masters now one thing he says which is interesting because it's common cultural meme with time travel. You go to the past, you change something, everything gets messed up. A TV show called Legends of Tomorrow, they had this device called the Waverider, a spaceship and time machine, like a large TARDIS for Doctor Who fans. And almost every time they went back through time to fix something, the fix may have taken, but there were always unintended consequences. The same thing happened with Back to the Future remember where McFly goes back to the past Mm -hmm. and convinces his parents to meet because his mother finds him attractive, kind of weird. So he makes his father-to-be tougher. And so they get together. When he gets back to the present time, his parents are much different because of that change in his personality and that's you know one of the the memes that we deal with but dr master says no no won't happen
2: yeah i'm i'm aware that he has that position um and again since time breaks my brain i i don't feel qualified to rebut that that opinion i will say uh gene you'll probably uh get a kick out of this um there was a film that was released last year called aporia a-P-O-R-I-A, and it tackles some of those issues in a really interesting way um, with a device that doesn't really, it doesn't uh, facilitate time travel, but it does allow for interference with the timeline. And uh, the way that they handle those changes and the sort of ripple effect I thought was really interesting and in, in the novel way of exploring how consciousness interfaces with the possibility of dealing with two separate timelines, so uh, check it out. I think it's still, f- last time I checked, it was free, so yeah, check it out.
3: I'll have to look for that one. That's, a, that's That sounds right up my alley.
2: <laughs> I don't know if you'd necessarily call it an art film, but it definitely has that feel, and it's definitely that budget, like there's no no real special effect per se, um, but it's all about the implications of, of changing the timeline and uh, the unexpected uh, repercussions from doing that, yeah.
1: I remember, for example, the movie Somewhere in Time, which Christopher Reeve and Jane Seymour did. Now, Christopher Reeve, I think, was trying to show he's not just Superman because it came out not long thereafter. And he kind of wills himself to go back through time. But then in his pocket is a modern penny. Am I right, Tim? It was a penny that destroys the illusion. And he goes back to the present but therefore time being a state of mind. You want to go back to 1890 to find the girl of your dreams? Fine. Just meditate and you'll get there.
2: (laughs) And that's something that people claim the ability to do. I mean, you know, they claim the ability to to be able to travel through time with just their mind. You know, I am psychically dead as a doornail, so I don't think that I'll ever be able to attain those heights. But, uh, you know, more power to those who can, I suppose. Well, it's better than me, they'll
1: say psycho, as opposed to psychic. Although I've seen a couple of times where strange things happen to be serious about, I'm just playing with puns. I've seen a couple of things, but one of the things that they have now is there's a company in California, we'll not mention the name, you know what it is, advertising widely on radio and TV that they'll give you psychic readings. I mean, I could think the psychics working for that company are making more than some lawyers do to just give readings. <laughs> and they guarantee if you don't think your life has been completely changed by this psychic reading or psycho reading, whatever you want to say, they will give your money back. Sure. Right. Now, Tim, you wrote to them, didn't you, about getting them on the show to do a reading and... I don't think they have the guts. I wrote them also. Yeah, they no, I didn't, I
3: didn't get a reply.
1: I got one of those replies you get when you contact the support department where you get this response someone will answer and nobody answered. Because if you look at the fine print, this is entertainment. They're not really predicting the future. If you like it and you want to spend dollars a minute or whatever it is depending on the abilities of the quote-unquote psychic fine but the problem i have here is i don't doubt those things happen but i've never ever ever been able to get a psychic to come on the show and show me they can do something that's more than a little bit of extra guesswork they've come close but hasn't worked
2: Yeah, and, you know, I think that's really – I mean, that's one of the most interesting things about the whole psychic claim, right? I mean, it it seems like it should be more easily authenticated than it is. And the only person who I think has really sort of made me headway in – well, that's not the only person. That's not fair. The person who opened my mind up to why that possibly is the case, that psychics don't always perform on demand, is – uh, again, George Hansen and his work, the Trickster and the Paranormal. Um, these phenomena don't seem to behave well under laboratory conditions. Um, the fact that folks like Dean Radin and Daryl Bim have accomplished as much as they have under laboratory conditions with psi phenomena, I think, is is to be you know applauded. But um, there does seem to be something about these these uh, psychic abilities manifesting most accurately and profoundly. During times of extreme distress, and obviously you run into ethical problems with that. You know, it's the same reason that we don't have, it's the same reason that it's difficult to structure near-death experience studies, right? Because there are ethical considerations (laughs) that you can't, you know, bring someone to the verge of death just to study what happens to them. Um, But you know, I, I think uh, there there are you know some indications that uh, this stuff doesn't just doesn't want to cooperate you know another good example of that is someone like gary geller um i know that he's gotten a lot of grief for posting some especially um unbelievable ufo and alien photos lately but um i do i do believe that there's a genuine aspect of um psychic talent going on there um but again it, it, it's this part of the part of the conversation that we had at the start of the show about hoaxing and the role that that plays i mean uh you know, the famous example was uh, Yuri failing to bend spoons on late night TV, and uh, I think that that was probably a function of being able to do this sort of thing on demand. These things don't really respond to to being on demand. Greg Bishop has a shirt that uh, has a UFO and a Bigfoot and in you know the psi symbol for psi phenomena, and it says repeatable but not on demand. <laughs> so <laughs> I think there's an aspect of that, and you know my good friend Soraya Azcaf often says that, um you know, the fact that he faked a sp- spoon bending on late night TV um, and then declaring all spoon bending um, incorrect is – or not incorrect, but de- declared all spoon bending a fraud – is similar to saying, oh, well, they fake punches in television and in movies, so punches aren't a real thing. <laughs> you know, it's like, well, there's a time and a place for these things, and they can be faked, but they also seem to be real at some point, and – I don't know. It it starts to sound a lot like apologetics, and and I'm completely aware of that. But uh, at the same time, um, yeah,
1: go ahead. Well, one of the things I want to talk about is an experience I had or was told about involving a former girlfriend, which I will on the other side, Joshua Kutch and Gene Steinberg. Tim Swartz are in. The Paracast.
7: Look for the free report, Crisis Cooling, how to make absolutely sure your meat, milk, and medicines stay safe and cool in any power outage. Yours free at MySolarBackup.com.
10: USA News
16: Update. Michigan's up, and uh, we're going to have a tremendous success there. And then we have a thing called Super Tuesday. And uh, I think we're leading 91 to 7.
10: Donald Trump wins the Republican South Carolina primary. And despite her loss in her home state, Nikki Haley says she's staying in the race next stop Michigan. The primary there on Tuesday.
8: In the next 10 days, another 21 states and territories will speak. They have the right. To a real choice.
10: President Biden and First Lady Jill, along with Vice President Kamala Harris and her husband, hosting a black tie dinner at the White House Saturday night for the nation's governors.
7: Here's to possibilities. The possibilities because there's so, I have never been more optimistic in my life about the prospects, of what we can do if we just work together. There's nothing beyond our capacity.
10: And I'm Laura Winters, USA News.
18: That's 818-984-6100 com.
0: This is Micah Hanks of the Grailey Report and you're listening to The Paracast, the
1: gold standard of paranormal radio. So her name is Sally. Don't know if she's still around or not, I assume she is. And she was a former actress. And we dated for a short period of time. And she told me the story that she saw Uri Geller on television doing his spoon bending trick. And she came from a fairly well-to-do family outside of Philadelphia. And she noticed that the utensil she had in her hand bent when Geller's utensil bent on the air. Now, it's not something that you could bend easily. I suppose you could bend the spoon or fork or whatever it was. You could bend it if you try hard enough, but that's watching a TV show. How did that occur? Whether or not Geller was faking it. Of course, when someone like the late James Randi was able to do it, say, see, this is how they do it. Yeah, maybe he's telling the truth there, but it could be done. It could be real in the fact that you can fake it doesn't mean it's not real. The fact is you can provide a very compelling image of spaceships taking off from planet earth based on the current designs. It doesn't mean that SpaceX isn't doing its thing.
2: Yeah. I think that there's, there's definitely something to that at the the same time, you know, with the rise of AI and everything, I, I long ago moved past The assumption that we would ever obtain some sort of photographic proof or honestly proof of any of these things um you know i think that it's really a fool's errand now to hope for some sort of smoking gun in the form of footage or or photographic evidence because already and we're only in the earliest days of this already the amount of ai images and ai video that's flooding the internet um is just going to make it impossible to to separate these things so I, I, it's kind of funny because I talk to friends who aren't involved in uh, the paranormal or the supernatural, and they'll excitedly talk to me about a picture that they saw or some footage that they watched, and I'm they're surprised when I'm completely disinterested in it. <laughs> but that's just where I've landed. Um, you know, I, I don't think that these things um, take kindly to being photographed, and even if they did, at this point, um, there's so much noise that the signal will I don't think will ever get back through. It's going to take someone landing on the White House lawn. Something landing on the White House lawn, you know, or a Bigfoot body. And even then, you know, I've, I've said this on numerous occasions. I was at uh, a conference back in August, and I said to everyone, I said, I want you to imagine that aliens are real. And I want you to imagine that the person that you didn't vote for in the last election is now president and they're telling you that ufos are real do you believe them like i think that we're we're beyond the point where we're going to reach a consensus from many authority figures on telling us you know that these things are authentic and real and genuine because no one trusts anybody nowadays in positions of power uh, our institutions just don't have that same sort of uh, authority to speak from anymore
1: Well, I'll give you one example, which we all know about 70 percent of people in the Republican Party or who identify as Republicans do not believe that Joe Biden was elected president in 2020 because of claims of fraud. Now, the fraud has never been proven with, you know, over five dozen legal cases. Regardless of that, what it shows here is that if you believe the other guy wasn't, Elected legally, And some people think George W. Bush was elected by the Supreme Court, not because of the difference in votes in Florida. Whatever it is, you don't believe that guy's elected. And he gets on the White House. In the White House, he makes a presentation in the Oval Office that we're being visited by E.T. A segment of the population will disbelieve it. Even if he brings E.T. on the stage. Oh, it's somebody in a costume. It's CGI. Can't be.
2: No, I mean, that's that's exactly what I'm getting at. I mean, it's – in any case, whoever is speaking, half of the country or half of the world, whatever side sympathizes with that particular figure, is going to believe it, and the other half is not. Like, and, and there was a time when, you know, regardless of how we felt about people in power, we'd say, oh, okay, well, they're speaking from a position of authority. I guess, you know, that that is the truth. But we're so broken um nowadays, that I just don't see anybody taking a statement like that on face value anymore. I mean, <laughs> if I wanted to speculate, um, maybe that's why we, we're we getting disclosure is because there's still this um, this heavy cloud of plausible deniability that hangs over all <laughs> official statements. <laughs> Or will you know? As we move forward into the future with this current problem, we you know, that we have of not believing authority figures, maybe that's the reason that now is the best time to uh, to talk about UFOs and to have disclosures because it will never be you know a consensus amongst any population.
1: They're not going. No matter what happens, that whatever happens, people are not going to believe it.
3: Right. Right. Yeah, the whole disclosure movement, I mean, you know, these these are people who are like, well, the government's been hiding UFO information from us for all these years, so we want them to uh, finally come clean and and tell us the truth. And saying that they would believe (laughs) the so-called truth that they're given to them after initially claiming that uh, they've been lied to all these years. So it doesn't make sense.
2: Yeah, I mean there's there's definitely a healthy dose of cognitive dissonance there and and I've I've historically been very cynical towards the disclosure movement for the exact reasons that you enumerated. Um you know, we know that there's a history of of uh <laughs> there's a storied back and forth between the intelligence establishment and ufology in terms of um manipulation and, and uh and, you know, even if there wasn't manipulation, the the truth has been hidden for so long, you know. Oh, why are you telling us now about this? Um, I, I've I've come around a bit, honestly, much to my surprise, on on the current disclosure push because I think that for the longest time I was Um, misinterpreting the goals of the disclosure movement i was under the impression that it was to again have someone come out there and say you know these are the kleborpians and they come from you know snarflax five and they drive a v4500 xp class (laughs) starfighter you know i was wait a minute wait a minute it's sparflax six Oh, okay. I'm sorry. That's 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 I, I should I should feel ashamed. Um but the planet was, uh, was destroyed.
1: The, the planet was destroyed by the zip bums about
2: six years ago. <laughs> that sounds about right. So I was I was laboring under the misapprehension, I think, um, that the plan was for disclosure to be comprehensive and granular. And I no longer think that has been the goal. I think that the goal is to just Cause a fracture in the facade of secrecy. Again, to sort of have us wind up at that point that I talked about at the beginning of our conversation, where you've got the average person on the street saying, "Yep, something strange is going on." And it seems like they've said that something strange is going on, but we still don't know exactly what it is. I think that might be the actual end goal for this current disclosure season. In which case, um, you know, I, I I support those efforts. I'm not sure how successful they'll be Um, and as usual i think that a a big grain of salt should be taken with anything that is disclosed but um, i think that's an achievable goal even if it's not a guaranteed goal
1: my problem of course is you keep hearing people who advocate for disclosure saying it's going to happen every second now it's going to happen this is it the new seriousness with which the u.s government takes the subject it's definite it's a something that you could just take to the bank well if i took it to the bank the bank account would be even lower than it is now because it never seems to happen (laughs) right you know you ask one of these people and i'll mention stephen bassett i like the guy i think he's being sincere he's not just trying to rip off people this is his life's work you know what his predictions are just inevitably wrong. And sometimes, especially with the congressional interest in the subject, he will tout some really wacky members of the House, and I won't mention names, really wacky people, because it seems to show what he wants to show. It just never seems to happen. What does happen is we have another segment with Joshua, Gene, and Tim, and then Joshua will be back for the After the PowerCast Podcast, check the Powercast app Plus for more. You're in
11: The Pedacast.
8: You are listening to GCN. Visit GCNLive.com today.
1: Hey listeners. the Paracas.plus to learn more about Paracast Plus
13: Eating, working, living pain-free. These are things many of us take for granted. But for many adults with disabilities who are elderly or have serious medical issues, dental care is simply unaffordable. Dental Lifeline Network is looking for dentists who can change this. DLN is asking dentists and their teams to volunteer to just see one of the many patients in need. You can literally change a life. When you volunteer with DLN's donated dental services program to C1, you treat a pre-qualified patient in your office at your convenience. We handle the details so you can focus on the care. Lack of dental care can lead to the inability to have life-saving surgery, eat, or contribute to our community. If you are a dentist or know a dentist, please share this message will you see one visit will one.org to help change one life in your community today
11: have you ever watched a video on the internet and found yourself waiting for the skip the ad button the reason this takes a few seconds is because the video delivery companies get to collect impression commission and the viewer never sees the advertisement the company still pays full price to run the ad does this sound like a scam to you is there any wonder why Internet ads are so ineffective? For over 100 years, radio has been a proven source for companies' messages. Radio listeners are engaged and want to support the companies that sponsor the shows they're so passionate about. Simple companies like window treatment, security, pillow companies, and more have been able to break away from the big box stores building multi-million dollar businesses. Find out what radio can do for your business. Call 877-996-4327 or advertise at GCNlive.com. That's advertise at GCNlive.com.
9: This is Jennifer Stein, executive producer of The Disclosure Dialogues. You're listening to The Paracast, the gold standard of paranormal radio.
1: So we've predicted all sorts of things here or just specified it. And let's see what's going on with disclosure, with investigation to Bigfoot. Let's go back to Bigfoot again. More scientific interest, Joshua. Do you think we're ever going to have a real answer that you can take to the bank?
2: I think that if we are going to have a smoking gun for any of these phenomena, Bigfoot presents the best opportunity. That doesn't mean that I'm optimistic about that, but it does mean that, you know, I said in Where the Footprints End that I co-authored with Timothy Renner, I said all other paranormal phenomena have Bigfoot envy when it comes to evidence, right? Uh, Because the most compelling evidence for any of the paranormal stuff, if you want to use that term broadly, I think comes from the Bigfoot Field, with the exception of something like psi phenomena, which I already alluded to earlier, and, and near-death experiences are also quite compelling. But if we're talking about things like UFOs and ghosts and Bigfoot, I think Bigfoot uh, offers the most potential for that because you do have this massive amount of physical evidence that can be studied and can be um, scrutinized. You know, and not only that, but some of the physical evidence clearly demonstrates aspects of primate anatomy, things like, you know, dermal ridges on the fing- on the fingers and toes and um, evidence of mid-tarsal breaks, which is a special um, configuration in the foot of certain primates that humans slack. These are all really compelling things. We have DNA samples, we have uh, hair samples, we have scat, you know, <laughs> we've got all this great stuff. But um, I'm just not convinced that there is a population of large hairy hominids anywhere, and of course, you know, the large hairy hominids are a worldwide phenomenon, but just focusing on on North America, I'm not convinced that there's a population of large hairy hominids in North America, because I do resonate with those skeptical counter-arguments, you know. I know that we don't often find bear carcasses and cougar carcasses, but we have, at some point in human history, and to that extent, we should have a some sort of evidence in the form of skeletons or bodies and whatnot, and we just don't. So at the same time, you know, as, as I alluded to earlier, I, I, I listen to experiencers and I've talked to far too many people who are very earnest witnesses by my assessment who have seen something strange. So how do I square these two things? The lack of the lack of irrefutable evidence. There's an abundance of evidence, but the lack of irrefutable evidence, and the fact that this thing seems to have some sort of physical component, and the fact that there are these very earnest people who have seem to have seen something um, resembling Bigfoot. How do I how do I reconcile these things? And that's why, much to my own personal chagrin, I sort of ended up landing on this possibility that Bigfoot is somehow more than. We've been led to believe by, you know, decades of cryptozoologists. And I don't really like it, you know, my inner eight-year-old <laughs> that, that grew up reading, um, you know, all these old Bigfoot books uh, wants Bigfoot to be something that we could possibly obtain a specimen of someday. But I just don't see it happening because it's been so elusive. So I think that it's possible that um, there is a population of hairy hominids and that sometimes just as Uh, With other animals, whatever lies behind the UFO phenomenon and other true anomalies, I think that sometimes it can adopt the face of animals and other mundane things. So maybe there is a small population of Bigfoot that uh, sometimes serve that function that the phenomenon adopts to appear as. But I really do think that uh, we're dealing with something that walks that line that we talked about in the beginning of our conversation, that line between the physical and the non-physical, that line between – you know <laughs> reality and story i think that maybe it does that it, it's it does function in that respect similar to the way that ghosts function leaving footprints behind and in its rarest instances appearing as a full-bodied apparition of a bigfoot but will never be something that you can put behind bars in a zoo you're implying here that the image of bigfoot is generated by something else some other phenomenon well,
1: it could be the same thing with ufos
2: Right. I mean, I I think that a a good analogy for this is Mike Clellan's work with owls. You know, Mike acknowledges (laughs) rightfully so that there are owls that are flesh and blood owls that you could shoot out of the sky and that do all the things that we would expect from a bird, but at the same time, something about the UFO phenomenon appropriates the image of the owl for its own uh, purposes. And I think that something similar might be happening with a large, undiscovered, hairy hominid in North American forests. That's something that I'm willing to entertain as a possibility if you really um put it to me as an ultimatum i think that the entirety of the phenomenon is paranormal slash supernatural but you know i'm I'm certainly willing to evaluate that or reevaluate that i guess i should say part of the problem i see in
1: figuring out what is going on is the fact that human perception can be very very inaccurate especially if they see something or hear something of short duration and don't have enough time to focus on it If you talk to 10 different people seeing something, you might get 10 different versions of what happened. So we have the anecdotal evidence, which can be imprecise, to be very generous about it. And that makes it very difficult to investigate most of these cases. I mean, a lot of people see weird stuff, well, there's weird stuff going on. But figuring out what it is requires more than just what you saw.
2: Yeah, and that's and, and something that we should all be aware of is the fact that the human mind does not function like a, a camera. You know, it, it's something that is certainly susceptible to a lot of other stimuli and also, you know, rewrites itself. We rewrite our memories um, more than we think. So, yeah, that's something that should always be considered and taken into consideration when, when evaluating this.
1: Well, since we were talking about disclosure before which i don't think will ever happen at least in my lifetime maybe in your lifetime or tim's but are we ever going to walk away at some point in time and say okay we've got the bigfoot thing figured out now we've nailed down ghosts we know what ufos are we can just wrap that up and go on to the next great thing
2: yeah i just don't know you know i i i think that these things by their very nature are to be mysteries. You know, that's, that's why I would be very happy to get some concrete answers on something like the UFO phenomenon. But at the same time, there is a part of me that thinks that the UFO becomes something else once you identify it. And I mean, you know, to be quite literal, it does, right? <laughs> you take out the unidentified. Um, but, but I think that, you know, from this sort of, get a little fancy, um, from this mythopoetic standpoint, from what the UFO represents as sort of a clearinghouse for all of our belief and speculation and archetypes and mythology, I think once you pin that down, it becomes something different. And I think that to not have that in our discussion, in our culture, in our lives, to not have that question mark looming over everything, makes us a bit poorer, to not have that sort of repository of wonder. And uh, at the same time, I think that I really sincerely do think that the UFO, like so many of these other phenomena, is it's slippery. The analogy that I I like to use is it's a bit like if you've ever tried to pick up a watermelon seed and you put too much pressure on it, um, it flies across the room, never to be seen again.
1: Yeah. We're going to see Joshua Cutchin again, but right now he has to leave us so return for the After the Paracast podcast. But now, Joshua, tell us where we can find more of the stuff you
2: do. You can find me online at joshuacutchin.com. That's J-O-S-H-U-A-C-U-T-C-H-I-N.com. I I try to keep everyone there um, up to date on things that I'm doing, including opportunities like this class on near-death experiences that I'm teaching starting March 23rd. That's through the Cosmos Institute. That's Cosmos with a K, cosmosinstitute.org. It's going to be a lot of fun. As I said, nine classes over the course of – the unit, and um, it, we're going to have some, guest, uh, some guests come in for Q&As. We're having a lot of people come in, and I'm really looking forward to it.
1: We're looking forward to having you check us out on Twitter, or X, or Z. It's going to be called Z, I'll predict that. Or threads, or on Facebook, look at the Paracast. Go visit the theparacast.shop, theparacast.shop. For branded merchandise for our listeners, check out theparacast.plus plus. To check out our streaming service where we give you the show free for network ads, better audio, and the exclusive bonus after the Paracast podcast, where Joshua will be back. Go to theparacast.plus for the lowest rates ever. Joshua Kutchen, so much more to talk about. Thank you for joining us on the
3: Paracast. Thanks. I'm happy to be here.